Morning, y'all. Don't call me. Hey, man, don't make fun of my Southern. I've been back home the last couple of weeks. Uh, the Southern accent seems to come out more heavy when I'm around my kin. Uh, so I can't help it. Uh, don't, don't make fun of me too much. But if y'all need me to translate y'alls and yonders, let me know. So I'm going to say a word this morning. And I want you to think about what that word means. Just to yourself. You ready for it? Discipleship. What does that mean? When you hear that word discipleship, what comes to mind? How do you define what that is? And it's awfully important that we understand it because the Great Commission is that we go ye therefore and do what? Make disciples. And we think so much of the Great Commission that we as a church decided that that's what we wanted to name our church. Mission Community Church. So it seems to me we really need to understand that word, that term. What is discipleship? Let me start off this morning with a statement about what the end goal of discipleship cannot be. What discipleship cannot be. And it might surprise you. Discipleship cannot simply be putting together good sermons and good lessons, and good church services, and providing overall access to the gospel. It, it can't just be about you guys coming here and having the package of getting information. I, I know we, we believe in preaching the Word. Of course. Of course we're going to preach the Word. And, and y'all, I'm a librarian after all. I, I want to give you access to information. That's, that's kind of what I do, and I see the value there. But the Great Commission is not just about getting information. Y'all, we have more Bible resources, Bible studies, podcasts, Bible scholars, great speakers and preachers and Christian conferences than have ever existed in the world. We have all of those things and then some today. Do we do discipleship any better? I don't know. Access to information cannot be it. We have this funny little 
person called Google that we can we can talk to and in 30 seconds you can find the answer to your question. I mean, we have more access to information than we've ever had before in the history of the world. You can go down the street, walk in this crazy store called Lifeway and buy pretty much anything that you want in terms of your, your Christian life. I mean, it's incredible the stuff that we have, but putting all of these things together, church services, sermons, Bible resources, programming, all of these things in and of themselves does not fulfill the Great Commission. We fulfill the Great Commission, as we learn in Matthew 28, by doing things like baptizing and preaching. But the Great Commission is making disciples. It means nothing unless we see people actually embrace the sermon, use the Bible resources, care about the church, invest in the church, build their lives around the gospel. The package itself, just coming and giving you guys a professional church service, whatever that means, means nothing. All the branding, all the marketing, all the stuff that we're going to do, all of the, all of the name and all the, all the stuff with, with kids program, all that stuff means nothing if people are not made disciples. It's about the Lord being known. It's about people following Him. It cannot be the package. Last Sunday, I, I wasn't here, and, and so I'm sure some of you are all like, man, he's a terrible pastor. He's like never here. Um, you know, it, I promise you, I was out preaching. I go, Scott's shaking his head. He agrees. Um, I was out preaching at other churches. I do that sometimes, uh, doing pulpit supply, and a lot of times I find myself, you know, in the little uh, backwards, you know, uh, country church, which is kind of how I grew up. So it's my people, man. Um, finished the sermon, felt like I preached my guts out, go, go back to the back of the room at the end of the thing, you know, kind of like old school. And the little old ladies, you know, shaking my hand, sweet, sweet old ladies, man. Uh, you know, pastor, that was great. You know, I really liked the presentation and, and everything like that. Um, none of that means anything unless they actually live it. Having the presentation, feeling like you got something from church, means nothing unless you are a better disciple for it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you got a great preacher. It doesn't matter that you've got a great worship man. It doesn't matter that you've got a church that's you know hip and everything like that and that's into missions. None of that matters unless you are a disciple. And so I want to do something this morning that I never do from the pulpit. Uh, I swore I would never do it, and yet here I stand. Um, I don't want to look at just one passage this morning. I want, to, I want to give us a biblical understanding of what discipleship is. And so it turns out that the word discipleship is, no, is nowhere in Scripture. That word, discipleship, cannot be found in any one passage of Scripture. It's a word that we use to refer to something we see throughout the New Testament. And so I want to give us a systematic understanding uh, of what Scripture has to say about this term. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand your word and how it always is relevant and always speaks to us. It reads us. When we've had a rough week, it reads us. Um, We recognize that with all of the things that you're doing through this church, that there is spiritual warfare in this place in, a, in a, just a myriad of ways. We ask that your word and your spirit would be bigger than that because it is. We ask that you would help us to rise above those things because you can. We ask right now that you would help us to focus for the next few minutes 
on what you would have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, discipleship. What is it? Discipleship means following Jesus. It's plain and simple. Don't need to make it too complicated. It means following Jesus. As disciples, we are called to imitate. Does anyone know where the term Christian comes from? I heard somebody say something. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, so where, the, where did that geographically come from? Does anyone know? Antioch, so close, yeah, New Testament. Uh, we find in the book of Acts, we find that the believers in the book of Acts in the, in the city of Antioch were called by other people in the city. They were starting to be called Christians, and it was originally a derogatory term, uh, like little, little Christ, little, little Christians, little people that follow Christ. But here's the thing. Christians didn't start calling other Christians that. Christians called themselves saints or holy ones. Christians called uh, the, the movement that they were a part of the way. But other people outside of the church started to recognize the thing that ties us together is the fact that we imitate Jesus. Now, they meant it for, for evil and derogatory terms, but, but we actually take it as a compliment that we follow him and we imitate. We try to look like Christ, little Christ, little, people who are in the way of Christ, following after the way of Christ. So Christian, is, Christian means that we're imitating Christ. So we imitate First of all, Jesus' love. We imitate his love. John chapter 13, verse 34. Let me just read it to you. If you want to jot it down, that's cool too. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He says a new commandment. I mean, we're like, man, the Old Testament tells us to love people. That's not new. Well, it's, it's not new as in um, it's never been heard before, but new as in it's different, new as in it's fresh, new as it's in a new way. The new commandment to love people and love one another like Christ loves his church, like Christ loves us. That's a whole different kind of love. To love one another like Christ loves us, a self-sacrificial love that results in other people looking into this church and seeing how we love one another and saying, you know what, that is, that's like something I've not seen before. That's a self-sacrificial love that doesn't look like anything else. So that other people come to the conclusion that we're different. By this, 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples because of the love that we have for one another. Next, we imitate Jesus' mission. We imitate Jesus' mission. Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And once they left their nets and followed him. Peter and Andrew are... Fishermen by trade, that's what they do. Commercial fishermen at that. And here comes this Jewish rabbi that they've heard a little bit about. And he just, you know, in a, in a statement of wit, says, stop fishing for fish. I'll make you fishermen of men. And they throw their nets down and come follow him. 
To be a disciple means you're willing to say, like Peter and Andrew, you know what, even if this means a change in livelihood, even if this means a change out of my comfort zone, even if this means changing everything I know, in their case, they're saying, you know what, the thing that puts food on the table for my family, I'm going to lay that aside for now and trust in what Jesus is calling me into. It's a change in priority. It's a change in mission. The priority was theirs and on them and on what they had to do. And it changes to go and follow Jesus and his priority and what he has for their journey. Imitate Christ in his mission. Next, we imitate Jesus' humility. Imitate Jesus' humility. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3, if you're jotting that verse down. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Don't don't think of your own motivation, selfish ambition or vain conceit. Not about your own vanity, but be willing to lower yourself to serve others. Y'all, I can't think of any example in all of history and the creation story. I mean, there's nothing in all of time that, that compares to how far up and how exalted Jesus was to how low he came. He came from his heavenly above on the throne of, of God to the cross where he was tortured for our sins. That's the kind of servitude that he paid for us. And he says, have the same mindset as him. We imitate Jesus for his humility, the willingness to serve other people. And along these same lines, we imitate Jesus' service. We imitate Jesus' service. John chapter 13, verse 14. Now, actually start in verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Verily, I I, truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that I know these things, you will be blessed if you do them as well. A lot of people in church services, or excuse me, wedding ceremonies will, will wash each other's feet. Hopefully, it's not because the bride and the groom forgot to wash their feet before. Um, hopefully, you took a shower before your wedding. Um, no, we, we recognize that it's an act of, it's a symbolic act. It's, it's an act of serving one another. You're saying that the course of your marriage is going to be a posture where you serve each other. Uh, you know, and, and maybe in Jesus's day, it was common, you know, sort of parlance to go and wash people's feet because they, they were actually dirty. But Jesus is not just talking about the fact that he got on his knees and like physically cleaned the feet. No, he's saying this is an example of what you should do for other people. I'm going to forgive other people. I'm going to forgive you. And if I can forgive you in my stead, you should serve other people by forgiving those people too. I'm going to give other people truth. And and, and in your example of following me, you should give other people truth. I'm going to do the unpleasant, sort of uncouth thing to go and get dirty by cleaning your feet. So 
you should be willing as you serve people to get dirty and clean their feet. We follow Jesus in his service. Now we imitate Jesus' suffering. We talk about discipleship. No picture of discipleship is complete without an understanding that we should suffer with him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 is the key verse here. Let me just start reading from verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. To suffer for doing the right thing. To suffer for doing the right thing. It doesn't always come in the form of physical abuse. It doesn't always come in the form of physical beating. It can be emotional. It can be psychological. It can be financial. But to suffer with Christ because you've decided that you're going to be the godly person in his likeness. He says you can expect it. He said that you're, you know, really in a fallen world, we're going to suffer either way. Have you, y'all figured that out? In a fallen world, at some point you're going to die. Uh, at some point, you're going to have pain. At some point, you're going to suffer because of something along the way. That's just inevitable. That's how things work, thanks to sin, right? So I, I don't know about you, but I would rather suffer because I've chosen to be godly, and I've chosen the right path, and I've chosen goodness rather than sin. And when you suffer because you've chosen the right path, but not because that you've chosen sin, but because you've chosen the right path, when you suffer for that reason, the Lord says, that is commendable, and you're doing exactly what you're supposed to do. If you're going to suffer either way, suffer because you follow Christ and you imitate him. Next, we imitate Jesus' obedience to the Father. Obedience to the Father. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anybody obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. John says, I write so that you can know that you are truly in Christ. What is the litmus test for whether or not you are a Christian? The litmus test, at least one of them, is that you're obedient to the word to his instructions, to the Lord. If you are obedient, you can feel certain you're in him. If you are not, you can feel pretty certain you're not in him. How many times have you seen people pay lip service to the fact that the Bible is a good thing, that church is a good thing, that they're a Christian, that's on their Facebook status, whatever, but then you come to them and say, here's what Scripture says, and it's not convenient for you, and it might cause you suffering, but here's what it says. And then they say, I think I'm going to do my own thing. The litmus test for a true disciple is whether or not they're obedient 
as Jesus was obedient. They're willing to say that the authority in their life, when we talk about biblical authority, we talk about this term in Sunday, or excuse me, Sunday morning Bible study, and we talk about it in church, and we talk about it in everything that we do. When we talk about biblical authority, what we're actually saying, and I don't want to make this overly complicated, but what we're actually saying is, you know what? If we can determine on any given decision or any given topic what Scripture teaches us, then Scripture said it, and that's what I'm going to do. We don't need to make that too complicated. Scripture says it. Maybe sometimes we have to dig in to figure out what Scripture says, and maybe we have to get some help from, past, from the pastor about what it says, and maybe there's some discussion there. But if we determine that Scripture tells us something, if you are a disciple, according to 1 John, then you will follow that instruction. That is the litmus test of a believer. Now, that's the definition, the working definition of what a disciple is. One who imitates Christ, one who follows Christ. But discipleship happens in community. Discipleship happens in community. Community, first of all, through encouragement as we meet together. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let me read that again. Let me read it again. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, all the more as the day approaches. Y'all, this ain't seven in the morning. I'm going to read it again. I'm going to preach on this one. You ready? And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about drawing near to Christ. It talks about staying fast in the hope that we have in Christ. And then how do we do that? How do we draw near to Christ? By meeting together and provoking each other towards good. We know each other well enough. We don't have a a superficial relationship with one another as believers in the church. No, we know each other well enough that we can keep each other accountable. That we, can, that we can help steer when things need to be steered. That we can, we can say, you know what, this is the right thing, this is the wrong thing, this is what Scripture says. Let me help you along the way, encouraging one another, not giving up meeting together. How many times have we heard people say that the Bible doesn't say we have to come to church to be a Christian? How many times have we heard that? It doesn't say that. Hebrews chapter 10, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Where where do you see that the Bible says we don't have to come to church? Ours is not a faith of isolation from one another. If we are a Christian that cares about drawing near to Christ, you will care about coming to church. It has to happen in community. It has to. That is how we are stirred to draw near to Christ because we know each other. Discipleship happens in community through modeling godly lives for those younger in the faith. 
modeling godly lives for those younger in the faith. Titus chapter 2, verse 4. You, however, must teach, and I'm going to start a little bit further back. You, however, must teach what is appropriate for sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanders or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Break that down for us. Super simple. Men model and teach and disciple younger men. Women model and teach and disciple younger women. Preachers preach the word. We are expected to impart to others in this discipleship process what it means to be a believer. When we, when we talk about this church reaching young families in Chester, Virginia, we're not saying that that just makes, makes every other family null and void if you're not a young family. At the, at the end of the day, you know what? We have a responsibility. In fact, it puts more responsibility on those who are elder saints in this congregation because now you're going to have more families by which you need to impart your wisdom on them. It is a responsibility of the church to impart this disciples, to reproduce their, themselves in younger believers. Modeling godly lives for young, those who are younger in the faith. Community happens through teaching in the church. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. You don't necessarily need to turn there. Just, just hear my words. So then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul is speaking to Timothy at the end of his life. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Paul, at the end of his life, is imparting the final words of wisdom to his disciple Timothy to ensure that the faith continues on. He puts a huge emphasis on preaching and teaching the word for reliable people to preach and teach the word. This church cares about teaching and preaching the word. That's another reason we have to do it in community. You can't, you can't preach to yourself. Not very easily anyway. Community happens through instructing your family. Instructing your family. Instructing your family. Let's say it again, instructing your family. Community happens through instructing your family. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Y'all, Discipleship is not confined to these walls and this building. The responsibility of your family knowing Jesus and being trained in the way of Jesus falls on your shoulders. A lot of people think, man, I'll just take my kids to church and let the pastor talk to them. Those people at church know stuff better than I do anyway. I'll just take them and they'll, 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 get them, they'll get them that Bible knowledge. 
we have the instruction from the Lord to take discipleship seriously for our own family. That means around the supper table. That means in, in, in the walls of, of your house. That means in your car. That means when they look at you and how you interact with other people, that you are modeling for them what it means to be a believer. You may say, I'm unqualified for that, Pastor. Of course you are. And so am I. That's why you need the church. And that's why you need the Holy Spirit. That's why we cannot, that's why we cannot stop meeting together. Because we need the community. We need the bride of Christ and his spirit in order to do this thing. The task is too heavy and it's too hard. And there's too many pitfalls along the way to do it on your own. You just can't do it. You've got to have the church. We have the responsibility to instruct our family in discipleship. And this community occurs through daily hatred of sin. Daily hatred of sin. Hebrews three thirteen. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We've talked about this time and time again. Sin has this effect on us where we start to feel hardened to the things of God and blind it to our own you know, uh, problems and issues. And so we've got to have that accountability of other people around us to show us where we've sinned. The best friend you have in this whole world is the one that is quick to stand up and say, hey man, that's sin, and you need to take care of that. That's a true friend. That's truly a community, not in a judgmental way, but in a way that's concerned about your discipleship. That is a part of this whole thing. And this community also occurs through using your spiritual gifts and love. Through using your spiritual gifts and love. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Actually starting in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Spiritual gifts, y'all, are divinely endowed abilities that saints perform that use to perform ministry. When you are saved, you are given supernaturally a gift from God to serve other people. And the Lord, the scriptures talk about this in terms of, in terms of serving gifts and speaking gifts. And we can categorize it in a variety of different ways, but those are your basic buckets of, of gifts. And so guess what? Those gifts and using those gifts and being used by God to, to, to serve other people, those gifts can be very edifying to you. In fact, they, I, I would argue, man, actually serving other people is the best thing you can end up doing for yourself and your own discipleship. But, but ultimately speaking, you can't use the gifts unless you're here serving people those gifts are intended for ministry to other people we are invested in one another we've been equipped to serve one another you've been called to be in church in fellowship and community with one another because you can't grow best apart from each other we grow best when we're together 
It is truly, when you look at all of these things, it is truly the case that discipleship is following Jesus, but discipleship happens in community because the Lord wants to see us reproduce ourselves and other people. He wants to see my strengths uh, as, as what he has taught me reproduced onto other people and their strengths and what, they have ta- what the Lord has taught them reproduced on me so that together we are stronger than we could ever have been otherwise. It's about making disciples. Being a disciple means making disciples. It happens in community. And finally, just a reminder this morning. Discipleship has a cost. Discipleship has a cost. Y'all know this verse very well. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 36. A large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and child, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. In relationship to your love and commitment and allegiance to Christ, all other relationships in your life should look like hate. Not that you hate them at all. But in relationship to your commitment to Christ, all other relationships fade into the background. You're willing to take up your cross and follow him. Take up your cross like go die. Give your life. Whatever it takes. Whatever journey the Lord calls you on. If you're unwilling to pay that cost, you cannot be a disciple. That is the cost of discipleship. I set... um, Friday morning, and maybe that's why I feel so kind of wore down emotionally this week, or Friday evening, excuse me, at a memorial for an employee of mine. Uh, She was in a car accident a couple of weeks back, uh, 24 years old, and passed away on the scene. And I had to get up in front of her family, who were from Delaware. They drove down to Liberty for this memorial, and all of her friends and talk about this young woman's life and her legacy, 24 years old. And I can tell you with assurance that if, if all I could talk about was the fact that she had done school well or that she was, had a good work ethic, I, I wouldn't have had much reason to rejoice. It would have been a very depressing time, I, I think. I mean, because what have you really accomplished in light of eternity? in that you've made some money and got a degree. What I'm telling you is what mattered in that moment when I look back at this person's life, what really matters in your life, the time from when you were born, the time until the time when you die, what really matters is whether or not you have been a disciple and made disciples. That's the only thing that really matters. If you've been a disciple and made disciples, if you've fulfilled the Great Commission, if you've loved the Lord, if you encourage others into uh, goodness, the extent to which we are doing these things is the extent to which our life matters. That's a bold statement. And in the instance of this particular young lady, I had a lot to talk about. Praise the Lord. Had a lot to talk about. She had invested in people. She was involved in her church, worked three jobs so that she could mentor other people. It was incredible. I mean, just in 24 years, what she accomplished was incredible for the kingdom. I hope and pray that we're living our lives so that someone can talk that way when we pass. 
What is discipleship? Discipleship means following Jesus in his love, in his mission, in his humility, in his service, in his suffering, and in his obedience. Discipleship happens in community through encouragement as we meet together, through modeling godly lives for those who are younger than us, through teaching in the church, through instructing your family, through daily hatred of sin, and through using your spiritual gifts. And in all of this, we've got to remember that discipleship has a cost. Are we willing to be disciples and to make disciples? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for, again, how you speak to us and how you give us meaning and purpose and um, you sustain us through difficult weeks. You sustain us through all of the ups and downs of life. You sustain us through dealing with death and dealing with suffering and dealing with hard things with relationships. Whatever, whatever we've gone through, you sustain us through those things. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that we could truly be followers of you in community with others, that we would know the goodness of your church, that we would know the goodness of, of following your way and your path and, and the right way. That When we suffer, that we would suffer truly because we're following you and that we can point to you and that there would be an outcome in this place in Chester, Virginia, where people look at this church and see love that imitates your love. Lord, all of the branding and everything, all of that discussion that we've had, all of that is, is moot unless we love one another. We must love one another so that when those outside of this place look in, they see you. And that's my prayer this morning, that, that we would know and experience and live that kind of love. In Jesus' name, amen.